I consider myself a story hunter. And so my job is to go out and find these stories and it's to communicate them and, and to make them available to people in whatever form you want to consume that story. I like to think of this, the story being the core and then all of these new technologies, some which work and some which don't work, as ways of further ways of delivering those stories. You probably know we wrote a book, Like Love Follow. And we constantly hear from other entrepreneurs who also want to become published authors. But where do you even start? And who do you even pitch your book idea to? How does it get marketed? So many questions. So we figured, why don't we sit down with someone who knows the answers? Enter Australian-born entrepreneurista Judith Kerr, president and publisher of four imprints at HarperCollins, including Harper One. She not only offers an inside scoop into the work she does, but a lot of wisdom on growing a successful career. Coming up, you'll hear the six things publishers look for in a book. The prevalence of imposter syndrome. Why your career should not be linear and why you shouldn't rush to get to the top. The power of the secret and how it played a role in Judith's career. Plus, how you can manifest amazing things by setting an intention. The one thing that Judith's mentor told her that has made a huge impact. And Judith offers a peek behind the curtain, working with big names like 50 Cent and Tiger Woods. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women executives or intrapreneistas are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Judith, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you joined HarperCollins about 18 months ago with the goal of creating a new imprint within the company. Yes. How did this come to be? Mm. How did you end up at HarperCollins? Well, they asked me, actually. <laughs> um, I was uh, previously at Simon & Schuster, where I was for 19 years, and I decided that I hadn't lived with my parents for more than 18, so I felt it was time for me to move on and do something different. Uh, the opportunity to come to HarperCollins arose with Brian Murray, who's the CEO. He's a fantastic boss and mentor. And he asked me what I would like to do. So I thought of the four things that I treasure most about publishing, that if I could put them together into a group, then I would see if my theories about how we should be publishing into the future were valid or not. What were some of the career highlights at Simon & Schuster? I started at Simon & Schuster as the president and publisher of Pocket Books. And then after a couple of years, there was a company reorganization. And so I was then asked to set up a new imprint, which I did, called Atria Books. So I guess the beginning of that was sort of a big highlight. And then we went from being kind of a, a very small piece to being sort of, you know, a major player in the publishing world over 15 years when I left. But I guess the biggest project that I ever worked on was The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. And oh that gosh. was um, very wonderful. Oh, well, we all and know that book. <laughs> yes. Well, and I learned a great deal by publishing that book, and we sort of did no marketing. Marketing, and Rhonda was incredible. We went on to sell 
worldwide over 35 million copies and to have it translated in sort of 54 languages, I believe. And we even let um, illegal translations like, like Farsi, for example, the US doesn't deal with the run. Um, we allowed those editions to exist because we felt that it was wonderful knowledge for everyone to have. And, you know, it's, we then went on to, I went on to publish many different pieces of the secret as well, but each one really is in, really in service to the first. I actually have the secret app on my phone. Oh, you do? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, well. <laughs> so we'll, we'll check that out later to see yeah. what the secret of the day is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so can you talk to us more about Atria Books? What, how did that sure. come to be? And so how did you get it off the ground? Okay, so Atria Books, well, basically they said, we would like you to set up a new imprint. And then we went, they went about finding a name. And so I m met a Tibetan kind of scholar who said, you should make the name be something of your intention, mm. not to be representative of, of a thing, but to be representative of your intention. So Atria is the name that we chose and it begins with a and ends with a which makes it a very powerful word it was the name of an ancient city which connected to the ocean via a series of canals and our aim as publishers is to connect authors to their readers it was the name of a star in the southern hemisphere and i'm from you know down under australia <laughs> And it was also a place that it's a plural of atrium, as you know, and it's open to the sky. And we wanted to be open to new ideas and provide a place where authors and staff could grow and flourish. So that was our intention. And then we got to work publishing authors with that goal in mind. So you were essentially acting like an entrepreneur within this large organization, which we yes. call being an intrapreneur. Yes, yeah, I was very pleased to hear that there was such a word. Yes. Yes. So yes, tell exactly. us a little bit about, so now you have the name of this new imprint, you're starting to get it off the ground. Like, What did you do first? How did you know what to do? Well, I made it up as I went. Yeah. Um, so what I thought about was, okay, so publishing is often considered to be a publishing house. So what would, if I'm going to build a house, my husband's an architect, mm -hmm. if I'm going to build a house, what are the four walls going to be? So I thought, well, I had four authors who I chose. One was Jennifer Weiner, and we published mm -hmm. her first book, Good in Bed. That would be sort of younger women that would represent that kind of publishing area. The second wall would be Jodi Picot, who was at the beginning of her career, and I published 18 of her books. Wow. And so she would represent a different kind of women's fiction. And Vince Flynn, who had also had just started writing his own and self-published his own first book, and he was somebody who we could grow, and he represented the male audience. And also Zane, who is African-American and wrote African-American erotica, where you basically cared as much about the, the characters with their clothes on as you did without their clothes. So, and so Zane was uh, the fourth wall of that house. And so we went from there. Did you always know that you wanted to work in publishing when you were growing up? No. I grew up on a farm and I had uh, actually had early entrepreneurial kind of talents, I guess, because my parents once told me you can have whatever you want, but you just have to get it for yourself. So that, oh, that's good. Now I have permission. And so I would sell things or make things popular at the school and then sell them to the kids. You know, there was a lady who lived down the road who was a rag and bag kind of dealer. So I would find rags and bags and take them to her and sell them and save up and buy whatever it was that I intended to buy and various other schemes 
And I actually was working in cosmetics when the opportunity to move into publishing came up. What were you doing in cosmetics? I was the press delegate and promotions manager for Christian Dior perfumes in oh, cool. a, and cosmetics in Australia. So, But, you know, I ran out of things to say about lipstick. And so what was your first role in publishing? My first role in publishing was to be the publicity and promotions manager of a company called Transworld Publishers. This was in Australia, which was an offshoot of Bantam Books in the U- U.S. and Corgi Books in the U.K. And up until that time, they'd only had distribution. And so I was asked to launch this company from a publishing point of view. And How so old I were you was, at this point? Uh, well, I've been around a long time. So I was uh, like 25. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing at 25 years old, already being asked to, to lead this. Well, I think they were, they were doing uh, counter-programming with the hire of me, but I used the bridge of publicity and promotions to move from one one industry to another. And I think that's a really useful skill to be able to do. So if you're thinking about moving, what is it that's the common point, which is not always the obvious one? And how can I use that to build a connecting point between the old industry and the new one? Mm. And I read a lot. So I was very interested in that. So I don't know a lot about the publishing industry outside of watching the show Younger. Oh, yes. Which, is our, favorite, which is our favorite show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. Excellent. Have well, you, you, do you watch it? I, I, yes, I do. Yes. Some of the times. <laughs> How does I'm, your day-to-day differ than what goes on on Younger? <laughs> well, I'm in the, the personal I, I, life stories aside. <laughs> the personal life stories aside, all our drama takes place between the pages, not outside of them. <laughs> and um, it's sort of similar in some respects. Although I think the assistants in Younger have slightly more glamorous wardrobes than the assistants <laughs> inside the real company. You know, I noticed that on the show. They're oh, they're never repeating their outfits. I'm I know. like, how are they, how can they afford to have all of a, these incredible outfits? Unless they're doing the Rent the Runway. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Very true. Yeah, that does, does make a good wardrobe possible. Yes. So uh, something that I wonder when I'm watching the show is – how do they find time to read all of these books in the short amount of time that everyone has running busy lives in New York City? How do you spot a good book when you see one? And are you reading it cover to cover before making the decision? Yes and no. Okay. So there's two kinds of books. There's fiction and there's nonfiction. So in fiction, is a completely different kind of acquisition process, and that's what requires most of the reading. Nonfiction are often sold to you prior to them being completed. So just on a proposal and they have what we call beauty competitions where the agents bring around the talent and, you know, meeting after meeting after meeting through different publishing companies and decide whether, you know, you want to make an offer for them or they want to make and be happy to publish with you. So there's a lot of that that goes on. There's a downside to buying off proposals as well. Has that changed over the years? And now with social media, are you looking for authors who have a big following that you know can really sell books? Yes. Well, not, but not exclusively. So, and we'll get to that later when I talk to you about Hapavia. But, uh, when I was at Atria, one of the things I did in 2015 was create a new imprint called Keywords Press, which was in association with UTA. And it was the first imprint dedicated to publishing online talent and mostly YouTubers. So we developed a whole program and a whole kind of methodology about how to work out which ones were going to be good authors and which ones were just going to be in the medium in which they've been discovered. So can you share? Uh, yeah, can yeah, you share I'm, how? I'm yeah. happy to share because you know I'm happy to use the the ideas um, are for sharing. 
The way we set up to begin with, we had fantastic partners with Brett Weinstein at UTA. And so they would give us a list of people who they saw were up and coming. Mm. And then we would then give that list to like 15 of the staff and have a whole day and just get everyone to watch everything of that particular person, then fill out a little questionnaire, like little A, B, C, D. And then to work out which ones out of that group would have ideas that were sustainable in print form and which ones were sort of pranks, which are really best left to video. Mm. And then once we did that, we sort of then had a closer look at that person. We talked to them to see whether they were interested in developing those ideas. And we went from there. It was very successful. It was exciting and very controversial because people would say, well, how could you possibly turn, you know, write, have a book written by people who are just jumping up and down on YouTube? But it's like, oh, well, okay, come see me when we've sold a million copies. (laughs) And what is that process like when someone gets a book deal? What happens Oh, it's very exciting. You should enjoy it. (laughs) And I always think that with a book deal, the author works for the publisher until the book is published, and then the publisher works for the author. Interesting. And it's kind of a switch that takes place. And one of the really key things is to make sure that the process of publishing the book is enjoyable for the author and for the people, but also for the author, um, as it's really – it's – it really is something that lives outside of you once it goes on sale. And um, we would often sort of see whether people were in it to make a souvenir of themselves or whether they were in it because they really had something to share on the page. Mm. Because the art of reading something on paper is an exchange of DNA in a funny way because the book takes on something of you and it becomes yours. And so you're entwined in that relationship. And some people refer to it as screenless communication, which is rare these days. And, you know, always about two-thirds away along the process, there'll be a meltdown. And then <laughs> then you regroup and then it's like, okay, because it's the moment of, of kind of realisation that this is going to leave you. This Your story is now going to be with the rest of the world oh, yeah. and it's no longer just yours and it's going to have its own life outside of you, which can be scary. How long does the process typically take? So if I have an idea for a book okay. right now, yes, I'm sure I pitch you, do. you. I do. Yeah, Everyone has excellent. ideas. Excellent. Yeah, pitch you this does. idea. You love it. Now what happens? Well, you you love it. So you either have an agent or some methodology for sitting down with a publisher or with an editor. Say you meet with one of my editors, you talk through the idea, they think it's fantastic, and you've proven that you're willing to put words on paper mm-hmm. and you've written a proposal and you've got a chapter or two. Um, and let's assume it's nonfiction for the idea. Mm-hmm. And then I ask my editors to fill in six questions. If they want to acquire anything, they have to fill in six questions because if they're basically not prepared to fill in six questions, they're never going to last the amount of time it takes to work with a book. Mm-hmm. So the first question is why this book, which is really what's the editorial content, what's the point, what's the purpose? The second one is who's going to read it? So what would be the uh, the audience for that book? And the third one is how are you going to put those two people together? What's your methodology of communication? Communication. Do they have a platform? Are they great on TV? Whatever it is. And then only the fourth one is then when the financial element of publishing comes into play. It's, and it's like, how many are you going to sell? Because everything that works in the financial model for publishing is based on how many copies you sell. And then the fifth one is where are you going to sell them? So am I going to sell them in Barnes & Noble? I'm going to sell them in Target? Am I going to sell them everywhere? And the, the sixth one is 
why do you think you'll sell that many? And so what's the justification? And this book is exactly like uh, the last best novel you read, or it's, you know, going to sell like the eight hour workday or whatever examples there are as a, as some way of justifying the financial commitment. And then we go about negotiating and that's how it happens. And then the work begins. Yes. <laughs> and then the work begins. Coming up, learning that you are enough. The publishing industry has seen a lot of disruption over the years mm-hmm. from people probably, you know, buying audiobooks, buying books right. on Amazon, right. social media, apps. Can you talk to us about how you stay on top of this fast-changing world and figuring out, you know, how to help your authors? Well, it's good to be curious and to not be frightened of change. Changes everything. And also to do some experimentation yourself and to engage in whatever way. You don't have to dedicate your whole life to it. And to find interesting people who can give you information about that. Audio, it's sort of interesting because if you think about what publishers really are, like I consider myself a story hunter. And so my job is to go out and find these stories and it's to communicate them and, and to make them available to people in whatever form you want to consume that story. So I once worked with some people at Skybound who did The Walking Dead and they have something which they call the wheel of awesomeness. And in that, it's at the core is the storyteller and the story. And in all of the spokes are different ways to express that story. Audiobooks being one of them. Mm-hmm. Ebooks could be one. Film is another. Radio plays is another. And on the printed page is, an, is another way of doing that. I like to think of this, the story being the core and then all of these new technologies, some which work and some which don't work, as ways of further ways of delivering those stories. When you joined HarperCollins about a year and a half ago, you then launched a new imprint there, Harper One. Can you tell us about Harper One and how Mm -hmm. it came to be? So Harper One existed already before I went there, and it's in San Francisco. So I have a team. I'm working with teams that are on both coasts, which is in and of itself an interesting dilemma, I guess. Dynamic, I should say. What's interesting about Harper One, it started in 1977 in San Francisco as a place to publish sort of religion and spirituality and new age and alternative thinking because that's where most of it was happening on the West Coast. So I took over that group and I'm the first president that they've had who hasn't been in the office. I'm based in New York, but I go back and forth. What we decided, so the dynamic with Harper One was to use them to form this new group. That's one part. The second part is Armistad, which has been in existence since 1986 and is focused on African-American and the African diaspora as the core audience and authorship. And I've published in that space for a really long time, and it's extremely important to me to have diversity in publishing. And the third part is books in Spanish for the North American Spanish reader, Spanish-speaking reader, and that could be uh, in fiction and in nonfiction. And I've also had some experience in that space, and then so I wanted that to be part of it. And the fourth piece, because I really like fiction and I can't speak any other languages, so I want to read those stories from elsewhere, is called Hapavia and it's completely new, and it's mostly fiction and mostly in translation. So each of those four pieces – 
have a different mission and collectively we have a motto that says our moral compass, if you like, is publishing for the world we want to live in. So if that book that you're proposing fits into that kind of, is it going to be in the world that we want to live in, then we can, you know, publish that. And then the way we do it is all for one. So all four imprints for one group, all for one, a bit like the three musketeers, but there are four, <laughs> four pieces. But the beauty of this kind of collaboration is we have one single editorial meeting where each of the editors working in those different fields all come together once a week and we exchange what the submissions are for that week. And the big idea is that we publish for the African-American audience, we publish for the Spanish language, the, you know, the spirituality and in fiction. But every now and again, there'll be one book which will speak to all of those four readership groups. And when you do that and you, and you, we then have relationships with those four readership groups, we can bring the four imprints together for one single book and then we can sell a lot. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned since uh, launching this and also right. having to work with the whole team that's on the, on the West Coast? Yes, there are two big things. So when I started in New York, there was me and there were 32 people in San Francisco. And I thought I actually hadn't quite focused on the fact when I said, oh, yeah, that's a great job. I desperately want to do that. So in the last 18 months, I've hired 20 people and most of those people are in New York and a couple are in Nashville. So I have three different locations. And what was really interesting about that was to work out how I was going to choose who should come and work with me. And I knew what my editorial focus is going to be, as I just described. So I went back to my old success and I thought, well, I'm just going to practice a secret and just let it all happen and mm. the right people will turn up, which is in actual fact what's, what has indeed happened. So the first person I hired is an excellent man called Juan Miller who moved back to the United States with his American wife. He's from Barcelona in Spain and had been working in a company called Salamandra that only published fiction in translation for Europe. So he had all the experience I needed to set up an imprint, mostly in translation, mostly fiction, but they had the added benefit of him being Spanish was his, is his first language. So that would also be able to help with the Spanish language program. And I hired Tracy Sherrard, who was already at HarperCollins running Armistad and brought her into my group, as I did with Edward Benitez, who's working in Nashville for the Spanish language program. So you always should start with the editorial. Mm -hmm. And then as you follow the process downstream, you then can hire the other support groups you need in the service of the book. So these three people just showed up and you just, just knew they up. were the Yeah. They How were did the they ones. show up? Did you put up a uh, well, <laughs> call? But let's talk. Talk a little bit more about Well, that. actually, well, you know, you should you, – so you have to put things out into the universe. Yes. So when I announced what my new role was going to be, I made sure I put in sort of keywords or, or sentences about my intention, about what I was going to do, so that people would respond to those if they were out there. Where did you make the announcement? On I'm, LinkedIn, in the press? <laughs> uh, the HarperCollins made it in the press, yeah. Yeah, so that was very helpful. And then people, and then of course, you send it to all the agents you know, and I know a lot of people from ar around the world. And they're the ones who said, Oh, you've got to hire one. He's just moved to America. He's got his family back here. He's fantastic. You will get along very well. You should meet. And so we did. I want to talk more about putting things out into the universe and letting okay. things just flow as entrepreneurs, as type A people. Mm -hmm. And it, that can be very hard sometimes. It's hard for me. Right. 
What other times have you done that in your career where things just seem to just fall into place? Well, when the secret turned up, it just uh, it just turned up. And Rhonda Byrne is also Australian, and she feels that we both ended up working in the United States so we could publish together. Um, I've always tried to do that a little bit because it's it's there's nothing very predictable about publishing, and there'll always be another book. One time I missed out on a book I was very bitterly disappointed about, but it went somewhere else, and the phone rang, and I thought, oh, well, I'll answer the phone. And on the other end of that phone was the agent for a young man called Aaron Ralston, who had just walked out of the slot canyons after having been trapped by the arm for seven days. And as you know, that went on to become that 127 hours, the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's like one thing, one door closes and another will open. So you have to I always feel you have to be open to the possibility because if you're not open, nothing can actually come by. It's like have a plan, make up a plan, write it down, and then be willing to change the plan. But the art of actually making it, which I did, structure of what I wanted to do, and then by articulating it, you're asking, and then you'll know that basically you've got the talents and you've got the wherewithal for things to happen. So then believe that that's actually – and believing in yourself basically and then be willing to receive those answers or those opportunities when they turn up, when they may be disguised in some other form. So it's, you know, make a plan, write it down, change the plan. Right. And mm-hmm. how many people are on your team right now? There are 48 and how do you so get double 48 people uh, collaborating, yeah. working towards the same mission? You mentioned that they're in um, different states. Yes. Yes. So different. how do you, what are your, some, some of your collaboration oh, okay. tips? Well, actually what's really important is to obviously hire people by their skills, but also how you relate to them. And I have a very diverse staff, which I think is really important. And I've always worked where it's a diverse staff. And I find that if you have a clearly articulated plan or vision, uh, something that will stir man's blood, so to speak, then people will come around that idea. And there any disagreements or different points of view are useful, but they don't have to be friction. They don't have to be as if you're in politics. But you have to listen to everyone and you have to allow each person to be willing to be wrong and willing to be sort of outrageous in their thinking. And then you just have to be really lucky and, you know, kind if you can be. Do you have a mentor that you've learned from over the years? Well, I've been very lucky in that respect. Outside of publishing, I have a woman who's still my mentor in a a way. She was my boss when I was at Dior and then she went on to become something fabulous in IBM for many years. She's always there for me to help navigate the role of a female executive, particularly as one moves through the decades of what is possible and what you should accept and what you shouldn't accept, what you can change and what you can't change. What's been her best piece of advice that she's given you? That you are enough. Mm. If I was to give people advice, I would say, you are not an imposter because you know, if you tap, if you, everything I have, I deserve, and I'm not an imposter. I've done my homework. I'm willing to be active. I'm willing to let the universe help. I'm willing to do the things that are required of me, and then we'll be fine. When did she tell you that? Oh, well, I keep getting a new dose. She's in Australia when I go back. She told me that when I was working for her. 
actually, because I had been hired to be a trainee sales representative driving around New South Wales selling aftershave lotion to pharmacies, you know, to drugstores. And um, then she spotted me and decided that I should come and work in the Dior section of that company. And she said I was, you know, you are enough, you can do this. So... And you've always had that and in the was, back of your mind. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. and do you – well, I have, you know, I lose track sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you mentor other other women or people who work under you as well now? Yes, I do. And I mentor women outside of my field of influence mm-hmm. as well, which is important. Or in just friends and, you know, I have a lot of friends who have children. And there are a lot of – I think there's um, a need for young young women, sort of in between twenty and thirty, who are wanting to make their way in business, what in any form that they choose, to have someone who can help navigate those early years mm-hmm. in a career, and just a way of thinking about it, a way to understand it's not linear. You don't always just shoot straight to the top. You can take sideways paths, as I have done, which are either forced on you, or whether you choose to do it that way. Um, and I try and help people in that bracket. Do you see now, especially with, you know, the younger generation, millennials, I know what, you know, we see people just want to climb to the top in one year, two years, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of experience that's required to get there. How do you, how do you help mentor this younger generation now that's coming up where, where you used to this instant gratification? Oh, okay. So I think what you need to do is to think about them as multiple mountains. They should be like a mountain range. So you can climb to the top, which is great. You're up there. Fantastic. But actually the only way, the only way to continue is to actually dip down. You can't leap from one mountaintop to the next unless you're a sky runner, but that's another story. <laughs> but, um, so you go down and then you sort of recalibrate and you move up again to the next project. And so you can have lots of peaks and lots of valleys that it's not just you're at the top and then what? Right. All by yourself up there. Not much fun. Can you share with us a time in your career where there was maybe a launch or uh, something that didn't go as planned and what you did about it? Oh, yes. Okay. So, well, publishing in a way is full of minor disappointments and daily rejections um, because, you know, the process of getting authors and them not wanting to be with you or any of those things. So against that landscape, I wanted to try, and it goes back to your digital question before, I tried with this group to do something called Crave, which was the idea was that they were romance novels, but they would be interactive, but through an app. And that there'd be some scenes that you wouldn't want to, that you didn't read, but you actually saw the video and that you then had a book boyfriend who could text you at night or whenever you wanted. And there'd be this interaction between you and the character. And then you could do gift boxes, you know, like how you get those gift boxes. And the gift box can be from the character in the book to you. What would that book boyfriend send you as a gift? on a monthly basis, or you might want to move on to another book. And then to integrate those images into book form. And we we sort of started it, but we didn't go any further than that. But there is an app called Crave App. It was great. But it doesn't need, exist anymore. I don't know whether it still exists What happened anymore. that you just stopped the, well, we, moving forward with the idea? So there's a difference between, as we spoke about before, instant gratification and investment. And it's hard to marry those two. 
And so at the, that particular point in time, it wasn't, it wasn't something that the organization I was with wanted to really develop to mm. see whether there really was a marketplace because it was a little out of the field of vision. But so that didn't go so well, but it was fun. It's interesting. I good. want to know a little bit more about the business behind publishing. So oh, okay. is there a certain right. amount of books that you have to publish each year? Yes. So my mission at, so I have the Harper One group, all for one. Great. Got four different readerships in mind and then a way of them all collaborating for those big mega projects. And in the course of the next three to five years from my beginning, the aim is to double the size of the business. So if we were publishing collectively 60 books, then now I'm moving towards publishing 120 titles a year through those four groups as originals, and then you redo them as paperbacks. And hopefully you have more winners than losers, but you never know. So at the end of the three to five years, I'll either have the business doubled or not. But when you want to double the business, you have to think, well, how am I going to do that? So then you break it down and you make a theoretical kind of publishing schedule. I need six, I need 10 books that are going to be fiction. I need 15 books that are going to be in self-education. I need three books that are this other thing. And I need one of them to sell 750,000 copies, which would be great. And I need one to sell 10,000 copies. And I need to be able to develop these authors' careers while I'm, I'm capitalizing on the ones whose careers have already developed. When I was at Atria, I developed, uh, along with my colleagues, of course, uh, Jodie Picot's career. She was, she had published three, I think, mysteries. And so the idea was like, well, when each time she was writing a book about a different subject, that can be confusing for people. So I thought about what if what she's doing is asking questions and each book is a different moral dilemma. So if I have one child to save the life of another, does that make me a very good mother or a very bad one? And then each story, if you can break it into that form, it gives you something to be able to go forward with. So one of those would be great. And um, so like that. Is there a set marketing strategy for every single book that launches yes. or are they all different? They're all different. They all have one. They're all different. So There's no secret uh, formula like you go on you go on tour, you get a PR person, you buy XYZ ads. It's they're tactics as opposed to strategies. Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. So you have to have the secret source. And each one is going to be different because the core of what the book is is buried its own marketing campaign. It's in there. Mm -hmm. And the job of the publisher is to find that and to bring it out to people and to find the way to speak about a book and then take that forward. So I'm publishing a book next year called Creative Care. So one of the areas that I thought would be useful to be able to, uh, a way of thinking about it, if you looked at the family tree, and this is for Harper One, if you looked at the family tree, but from the top of the tree through the branches down to the youngest generation, what would the view be? What does that family tree need that's different than if you look from the children up? So one of the things is about aging at home. And then you put that, so that's a, a kind of a category and it's growing. There are 70 million baby boomers out there um, who are vigorous readers. And then was, and in telling that story to agents, I came across this wonderful book called Creative Care. And it's a new approach to Alzheimer's. So if people have memory loss, they, they lose their memory, but not their imaginations. So how do you stimulate the imagination of the loved one so that they feel like they're loved for who they are now and not upsetting people they don't know? And 
that we're launching that next year. And so as a consequence, we're also creating conversation kits. So if you go to visit someone who has memory loss, you don't know what to say. People mm. are worried about getting into the fantasy of it. The conversation kits have images and questions that you can ask that person to stimulate their imagination. And then they can be cross-cultural. So then, you know, Armistad can build us their own conversation kit for that. Uh, we can do them in Spanish. We can do handbooks for home carers. So you build out a program of intellectual property mm. based on a singular idea. And then you do it 10 times. <laughs> Up next, inspiring the next generation of female writers, plus a surprise. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com. How can publishers and authors work better together? What advice do you have for people who want to publish a book? How can they make your job easier? Oh, a good question. Um, how can they make my job easier? Well, part of the publisher's role is really to help manage your expectations. And so I think it's really good to be able to have a an honest, clear conversation about what e the expectations of the book's success is going to be and how long that's going to take to achieve and how much work is required. So if you've, if you've come to me with a book and I've, um, signed it up with you and you, you have a podcast and then you have lots of friends who have podcasts. So it behoves you to actually activate that network. Mm -hmm. You can do that in a way that the publisher can't, even though it may seem like it should be the publisher's job, everybody has to use the relationships or work with the relationships that they have to their best advantage and that it's a collective endeavor. So if you booked the Today Show, but I called them, who did that? And it's important for it not to be devolved down into, well, I did this and you need to do these five things. Because the thing to remember is, A, the publisher's aim is exactly the same as yours, is to maximize the number of books that we can sell. We've invested time, energy, emotion, and money into the project, and we really care, and we really want the best for the book, and we don't always succeed. Um, but our intention is always to work to that aim. Are more books being sold mm. via, I guess, ebooks or audiobooks? How what are the what are the trends right now in terms of how people are consuming books? Well, audiobooks are they're like the heroes. So right now. That's, that's uh, what I listen to, audiobooks. Uh, me too. Yep. And I have always listened to audiobooks. When I was in Australia, I was on the committee for production quality for books for the blind in the, the Royal Blind Society to work out which ones should win the best production mm. because at that time people would do them in their homes. And so if the dog wasn't barking in the backtrack, then they would probably win. So I've been listening to them for a long time and I love being told stories. It also duplicates the amount of time you can do things. So I can do things with my hands and listen. But they're the heroes at the moment. Ebooks seem to have been stabilized, and certain books are better in ebook form than others. And print books are really the good soldiers. We're selling a lot of those. When you sell a book, it will sell a lot in print. And are people buying more books now on Amazon than ever before? Is that like the main driver of... Because their Barnes and Nobles yeah. are closing all over. No, 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 no. They're not closing. They're not closing. Sorry. Uh, Barnes and Noble are... Uh, 
Well, Barnes and Noble have been bought by Waterstones, and Waterstones is a big chain of booksellers in the UK, led by a great CEO called James Daunt, and he began his career as an independent bookseller、mm-hmm. with a small chain. Was hired to come and run Waterstones. Waterstones, being very successful, have now bought Barnes and Noble, and there this Christmas we'll see a big. Difference、okay. in the stores, <laughs> and so he's he's changing them around. And what's really interesting, and I think、uh, will will be a really good thing, is to break them down in some respects. So the people who work in the Barnes and Noble in Minnesota can craft the books that they have there、yeah. to suit their local environment, rather than just being dictated by a particular head office kind of. Point of view,、um, so that would be great, and to be more involved in the community. So we're all hoping that that is a successful formula because it would be horrible if everything just came through the mail. Yeah, I love going to bookstores and sitting down. You know, with Barnes and Noble, they have Starbucks in there and. Taking books, sitting down with them, deciding which book you want to get. There's something about actually being there and physically touching, touching copies of books. Yes. That, well, you know. I, I always thought that would be a good use of some of those those cafe spaces would to be kind of take a little idea of the WeWork, and so authors or budding authors who were there who wanted to write could go into the bookstore and have a writers' corner, and then when they become A big, successfully published author, they can go back and tell everybody how they started. How they started、yeah. there. I、yeah. love that idea. You have had an incredible career, and you were recently given the Agents of Change Award by Girls Right Now.、Yes. Can you share a little bit more about their mission?、Uh, yes, that was a wonderful evening. Girls Right Now has been a leader in the arts education in New York for the last twenty years. And it's a mentoring and writing organisation for girls. We match underserved teens, teen girls, and gender non-conforming youth with professional writers and digital media mark makers as their personal mentors. Our mentees are published in outlets including the New York Times, Newsweek, and BuzzFeed. They've performed some of their work at the Lincoln Center and the United Nations, and earned hundreds of Scholastic Arts and Writing Awards. So the publishing partners for Girls Right Now are making a true investment and working through Writing Works. It's a workforce development program giving young women access and exposure to an industry in need of their talents and skills. There is a market demand for stellar and uber effective young women. For example, if you're a teenager. At high school, and you want to know how to write an application letter, or for your SATs, we match you with mentors and writing partners. And if you want to be a poet, we'll be able to help you match up with a mentor who can help you with that. And a lot of writers of note get involved with the program, and it's really as a way to help the underserved groups of young teen girls and gender nonconformists to be able to get the skills and the support. When they might not be able to, on a regular basis. What did it feel like to win that award? Well, it was a great honor for me to win that award, and they said I could have one of my authors present me with the award. And so I thought, well, I'll aim really, really high. And so I, next year, I'm publishing Miss Cecily Tyson, the wonderful Academy Award-winning actress who's now in her nineties. Whether she would、uh, present me with the award, and 
not thinking that she would be available. Anyway, she did, and she was fantastic, mm. and she, no one could believe that she was in the room. So it was wonderful to be able to, for her to be able to see all these young, bright girls beginning their careers as she writes her first book in her 90s. That's awesome. So it was really fantastic. But you can see her on YouTube. She's unbelievable. Have to watch that for sure. Who were some of the authors that you discovered in 2019? And do you have a favorite new release of 2019? Well, I grew up in a very large family, so I've learned from a very early age it's not good to have favorites. <laughs> you get in trouble. <laughs> so you get in trouble. So I have this wonderful book which you just published on the 22nd of October, and I'm a big believer in counter programming. It's called The Boy, The Mole, the Horse and the Fox, and it's by Charlie Maskey, and it's really about how to be kind. Mm. And he came up with the idea for this book when he was talking to his friend Bear Grylls, who's a big outdoor adventurer, and they talked about what is the bravest thing you've ever done. So Bear said he was halfway up a glacial mountain and he had to unclip himself for 30 seconds so he could unravel his ropes and that was the bravest thing he ever done, ever did. And then Charlie thought about it and he said, well, the bravest thing I ever did was to ask for help. And then he drew an illustration of a horse and a little boy having that conversation. And that's the beginning of this book. And it's shortlisted for the Barnes & Noble Book of the Year. Wow. And it just won the Waterstones Book of the Year in the UK. And it's for everyone. And it's a book. It's no. It's not really. It doesn't really work as an ebook, um, and it does definitely doesn't work for an audio book because it's completely illustrated. And you sh and it's on the New York Times miscellaneous how to bestseller list. So when I saw three postcards in March when I was at the London Book Fair and I said to the originating publisher, "I have to publish this book. You can't sell this to anyone other than me. This is. I have to publish it." So. I love those kind of books. So it's perfect. And it will sell a million copies for sure, sooner or later. And I always only ever put a, a, put a benchmark, never a ceiling. Does that ever happen in the industry? Well, I think the answer is yes, yes. where you launch Actually. a book, but it catches on maybe mm -hmm. three, four, five, ten years later. Does yeah, well, yes, yeah, especially now with uh, things going on on Netflix and films and things. So I'm very excited about that. But I'm also thrilled to say that I signed up with my colleague for Harper One, Tiger Woods, ah, this year cool. for the world. So he's going to write his memoir. Oh, this is going to be interesting. it's going to be very, very interesting. And I've met with him a couple of times. He's fantastic. And he has a lot to say. And he's really, it's going to be, uh, he had to work very, very hard to reclaim his body as well as his life. And he then went on to win the Masters, as you know, last year, this year. And um, so I'm really, really excited. And I'm a golfer. But yeah. I'm really excited about that. Well, but so I when think will, it's going to be the book, book of the out? century. We're strategically not disclosing ah. that. <laughs> it's going to be a big marketing it's drop, really, right? <laughs> we're going to publish it everywhere simultaneously in all the different languages. Because HarperCollins has the 17 countries, you know, 17 countries with publishing houses in them. Can you give us any sneak peeks into what we can expect for 2020? Oh, 2020. Yes. Which is right around the corner. Yes, which is very, very much on our, on our minds. We're going to be have publishing Miss Cecily Tyson's. We're going to publish Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent. 
Ah, He's, yeah, oh, it's fantastic. Wow. And that's in April. It's called Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter. And when he did his cover review, speaking of what authors can do to help, we did a fantastic video behind the scenes during the photo shoot for the book jacket. And he, when he put it on his social media, to date, last time I looked, we had over 800,000 views of that. So, but it's great. And he's fantastic to work with. And we're doing an, um, an audio of that. And then we're doing an audio original as well. So we're doing two audio pieces, uh, as well as his book. And Does I that think mean he that, reads the book. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you can go on Spotify and you can do a thing that shows you a map of where anyone in the world at this particular moment is listening to 50 Cent music, which is cool. So I'm excited about that. And, and many others. One novel I can tell you about is called, uh, Good Dogs Don't Go to the South Pole. And it's set in, it's, uh, set in Norway. And it's about, um, a man at the end of his life he, and his dog and his widow. So the dog and the widow have to create a new relationship once he passes. And the book is narrated by the dog. And she is, they have conversations and she's trying to find her life too mm. after her husband has passed away. And it's charming and bittersweet. And as a little girl, this woman would go around her town in, in Norway with a stool and a book, and she would find adults to sit down and read her parts of the story because that's before she could read. So she spends a lot of time reading to the dog. And uh, I won't spoil it from there, but it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, don't tell us then. Yeah, so good. And <laughs> interesting enough, we will have a different ending than it was originally published with. Interesting. Yes, How does that happen? Well, it's like, oh, could you just do one? What about this? <laughs> and he was very. And now he's going to actually change change the ending back in the other places where it's oh, already cool. been published. Wow. Anyway, it's wonderful. And I published Frederick Barkman, Man Called Uwe, and those pro those projects when I was at Atrium. We sold nearly collectively in the U.S. I think nearly to at least two million copies. Wow. So I'm thinking Frozen. Stories, frozen landscapes would be a great thing. You've definitely had a very, very inspiring career. Can you share at this point what is a typical day in the life like? Oh, like today? Yeah, today. Okay. That's typical. That's typical. Well, yes. Do a podcast, Entrepreneurs to Podcast. <laughs> yes, do, do, do a podcast. I had breakfast at the at the Royalton with the the uh, two people from the girls right now um, to talk to them about various things. Then I came here. Um, and now I'm going to catch the F train down to my office, which is at, down in Broadway, Fulton Street. And there I will have, uh, often I'll go to Nobu, not to name drop for lunch because they're in our building. Yeah. And what's your order at Nobu? I, I know how to order an excellent $25 lunch at Nobu. Oh, tell us. Okay, what's, yeah, the we, we what's, the <laughs> what's the secret? What's the secret? Yes. Well, there are certain, there are certain, the, the noodle dish is fantastic with all you can eat basically. And it's only $17 or $19 if you get the shrimp. Ooh, mm. I love their miso soup. Yeah, yes, exactly. now, now I'm really hungry. Yes, exactly. So. Is there anything that you wish you had known when you first started your career that you know, know now that you would want to, to share with someone that's just starting out? Well, you know what I've been thinking about? The thing before about not being an imposter is really mm. important. It's like just to have confidence in yourself. And it doesn't have to be confidence every single day. Hair is important and making sure that you, you every day you, you are happy with the way you leave the house and that you're prepared for whatever you're going to have 
be confronted with that day. If you can, fresh flowers is always nice. But the things that I try to do to stay sane in this very active world is like it's really important to spend some time in nature, whether that's just being outside for a little bit is really important. To have some kind of activity that has got nothing to do with your day job. Mm -hmm. And I make little crafts and nine-second videos. And um, it's really important to also network outside of your industry and to be happy as much as you can. And everything passes, both the good and the bad. Yeah. Now that's definitely, definitely really, really great advice and things that we tell each other yeah, every single day. <laughs> yeah. All the, the tough moments, they eventually pass. And at the end of the day, you just have to trust and believe in yourself. Yes. So. Oh, and the other thing is that uh, without the pressure, champagne has no bubbles. Ah, I've never heard that one. I really like that. that. I remind myself from time to time. (laughs) Uh, What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Oh, well, it means that you have the opportunity to sort of combine the best of both worlds in a way. I've been able to find a way to both be someone who creates new business and new opportunities, not just for myself, but for authors and for the people that we hire. And I've also been fortunate enough throughout my career to be able to be in organizations that valued that and gave you the support for it um, to allow you to be able to do it. And so finding those places. And I think it's really important to being an entrepreneur now that it's named is that people see that there's a career opportunity and being in a big organization is not like being in a public service, that there are these opportunities and it's the only way you can change things is from within them. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We actually got you a gift. So something we like to do on the show is we like to surprise or delight our guests. So we actually got you something in the Entrepreneurista swag bag. Right below your seat there. there. Yeah. That's for you. Oh, thank you. Shall I? Can I? Yes, open yes, it? please. A wonderful uh, travel bag, so yes. I can go through. <laughs> yes, the and, airport. and everyone can I'm see what you're reading. reading. Good yeah. promo- free promotion. Yeah. That's a very good. I'm going to actually take that idea. <laughs> We'd love to share ideas. So yes, take them. Yes. Oh, very nice. Yes, and and a notebook, which is perfect with a marker. Excellent. And there's and, more. And there's more. <laughs> My weekend is all booked. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And there I love should it. be something little in their little tiny bag so it doesn't get lost at the bottom. Tiny little bag at the bottom. You see it? Oh, how I tiny see it. is yes, it? It's a, it's a. I can put this next to my. I have two. Or I have a, a, a. I just published a big book on prints. So I have a yeah. prints one, and I have uh, um, anti-racist one as well. So perfect. Entrepreneur. Now we can. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your story and your journey and just incredible tips about how to not only publish a book and how to, you know, be a potential author and, uh, you know, bring that book to life, but also how to really work your way up within an organization. The tips you shared were incredible, and I know our audience is going to really enjoy everything that you shared today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's wonderful. Where can everyone find and follow you or Harper Collins? Okay, so you can follow Harper One. If you want to follow, uh, my name's Judith Kerr, and I'm just a parrot on Instagram. (laughs) Okay, we're going to follow the parrot on Instagram. Yes, so I, I just do... Flowers and nine-second videos. I'm trying to do micro storytelling, but I'm just starting out on that. I found you. Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) 
So and Harper won on and Instagram Harper won too. and Armistad and Harper Via, but and Harper Collins. Thank you so much, and we'll be sure to to share this with, with everyone and all of the links, so people will find out when Tiger's book is going to come out. Yes, and, exactly. And Fifty exactly. Cent. Yeah. Thank you again. I'm thank Stephanie you. and I'm Courtney, and this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening.